there's another study that came out that only 12%, or maybe 12.2 or 3% of Americans are metabolically healthy. That means 88% of us are not metabolically healthy, which means we have high blood sugar, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or have belly fat, right? 88% of us. So even if we're thin, you know, about 20 to 40% of people who are thin, if even they, oh, I eat junk food, I'm not gaining weight, what's the matter? I can eat sugar. No, on the inside, you may be just as bad as someone who's obese. You just can't tell from the outside. I believe that each and every one of us has the power within ourselves to create the life that we really want. And I want to help give you the tools to make that happen. I'm Danica Patrick, and I'm Pretty Intense. I believe that everyone should experience what better feels like. That's why I love Beam CBD. I'm an investor, and I swear by Beam's products, which combine THC-free CBD with other high-quality ingredients. Beam was founded by two former professional athletes, Matt and Kevin, and they just dropped a new product called Focus. It's a daily capsule that helps boost your focus all day long. So visit beamtlc.com and use the promo code PRETTYINTENSE for 15% off your next purchase. That's beamtlc.com. On the show today is Dr. Mark Hyman. He is a physician and 13-time best-selling author. He has a new book out this year called Food Fix. We talked about animal protein. We talked about sugar. We talked about protein powders, soil health, you know, what is happening to our food before it gets to us. I think it's just important for us as a culture that we start to learn and understand what's going on out there in the world that's making us either well or unwell. And he is a deep sea of information when it comes to that. I learned a lot and I know you will too. So get into this episode and take your notes. What I find the most exciting right now is that so many people, so many people seem interested in health and wellness and are becoming more aware of natural modalities and where their food comes from. And I'm just curious where you think that that's coming from. Uh, I think we, we are seeing the best and the worst, right? So we're seeing a movement of people who are really health focused, focusing on whole foods and eating better and exercise and spirituality, meditation, and focusing on sleep. And yet at the same time, uh, we have a pandemic of chronic disease that affects six out of 10 Americans. 75% of us are overweight, 42% are obese, including 40% of kids are overweight. And, and uh, we've never seen this level of disease. So at the same time, there's an interest in health and wellness. We're also seeing this pandemic of disease. So I think they probably are feeding off each other a little bit. But I, I think we're in a very weird moment because we now know more than ever what to do to create health. But at the same time, we're suffering under the burden of debilitating diseases that are crippling communities, that are depriving people of their vitality, that are leading them with huge burdens economically from healthcare costs. So we're, we're in a very unusual moment, but I, I'm hopeful because I think there, there is a rise of awareness about eating right and living well and how important that is and, and understanding the connection between what we eat and how we feel. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let's break it down. Like, let's break down why there's such polarity right now in out there in the world. There's people, there's children that are obese. There's people dying of heart disease and 
anxiety and all kinds of crazy things right now. And then of course there's the other side that are, you know, into, you know, organics and their own garden and adaptogens and meditation. And so <laughs> I, I, I kind of, I'm curious, like, let's start with, let's start with the, the worst news first. Like, why are we over here on this, this side of people dying from yeah. not taking care of themselves? Well, that's a great question. I, I wrote a book recently called Food Fix, how to save our health, our economy, our communities and our planet one bite at a time, trying to connect the dots for people helping them understand why we're in the situation where not just in terms of our chronic disease burden, but why is our economy strained under the cost of healthcare? Why are we seeing communities suffering so much from the burdens of disease and, and, dis, and dis, disparities in health? Why are we seeing our environment and our climate being, you know, really uh, burdened through, through um, you know, both the environmental destruction and, and increasing carbon in the environment? So how do we address all these things as one problem? Well, it turns out they're all connected by food. And, and, you know, while there were good intentions after World War II to create a robust agricultural system that produced a lot of food for a lot of people with a lot of calories and feed a hungry, starving, growing world, we really didn't understand the unintended consequences of doing that the way we did it, which was to grow large amounts of starchy calories, wheat, corn, and, you know, soy, obviously, too, and doing it with agricultural methods that were extremely destructive and extractive. You know, we didn't know pesticides were bad. We didn't know fertilizer was bad. We didn't know that we damaged soil and that would lead to carbon in the environment. That's really? basically, it. no, people didn't, didn't know. know. Better you living through chemistry. Throwing no. chemicals in the ground puts it in the no. ingredient. And puts not it in, in the 1950s, not 1940s and 50s. People had no idea. It wasn't huh. until Rachel Carson wrote the book Silent Spring in 1960, where she connected the dots and showed how DDT was devastating all kinds of animal populations and birds. And I mean, we've lost 50% of our bird species in America because Seriously? of the way we grow food. Yes, we've lost so 95 from eating the food that's that has so many chemicals in it or because we're spraying everything and those yes, is those, those, you know, those chemicals affect the, the, the birds and, and they're and they're just not reproducing and they're having, you know, eggs that don't form hard shells. I mean, this, this is a really frightening thing. There's a book called Our Stolen Future that describes this. And uh, you've got a very excited, uh, excited fan there. <laughs> um, oh, my guard dog. Yeah. And so I think, I think we really never understood that, that it was bad. It was, you know, the modern progress, the green revolution. It was, you know, industrialization and, and modernization. It was a good thing back in the 50s. But we now know that those, those things which we did unthinkingly, thinking we were doing a good thing, actually turned out to be a horrific thing. That We now produce 500 calories more per person in America than we need to eat, mostly in the form of sugar and starch, which now we know drive diabetes, obesity, and heart disease. And we do it in ways that are extremely destru destructive to the environment and lead to uh, destruction of our soil. We have 60 harvests left before we run out of soil because of over tillage and the chemicals we put in the soil that kill the microbiology yeah. in the soil frightening that's frightening. yeah yeah 60 60 harvest that's like you know that's i'm maybe i'll be alive in 60 years i don't know but you probably will be and i mean like you know that is a that is a lot not that far away and no soil no food no humans <clears throat> and we have uh, water resource issues because of how we're irrigating and using all the aquifers we're destroying biodiversity of of our plants i mean we've lost 95 percent of our edible plant species 50 percent of our livestock species and uh, and again, uh, seventy five percent of our pollinator species, which are necessary to pollinate. Bees? 
is this the bees? bees yeah bees and bees and birds and you know like butterflies and it's like so so and we're and we're and then and then we're destroying oceans through the nitrogen runoff that kills you know hundreds of thousands of metric tons of fish every year in the gulf of mexico and there's you know 400 of these dead zones so we've created this massive destructive agricultural system that produces food that's bad for us that harms the planet and it, and it needs to stop and it, and i think we're now only waking up to this fact and, and i'm really encouraged because there's a whole movement of regenerative agriculture regenerative right. health which is really about rethinking how we're doing things and the good news is the good news is that <clears throat> by actually focusing on the farm and the seed and the way we grow food we can produce better food it's more nutrient dense that restores the environment that makes farmers more money that puts carbon in the soil instead of in the atmosphere and really can be the biggest carbon sink on the planet, you know, bigger than any other technology for solving climate change, can yes. conserve water and increase biodiversity, bring back all kinds of species of animals and plants. So it's, it's a really win, 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 win solution, but, but it needs to scale. And so I think, you know, I was at a conference this week where we discussed, you know, how do we scale up regenerative agriculture? Cause it really is the key. And how do we link agriculture and healthcare together and understand that food is medicine and that, that we really should be focusing on that. So I think that's, I, I think we're in, a, in this pivotal moment where we're starting to hear about it and it's being talked about and, and it's very exciting. Well, you mentioned that it could be more financially beneficial. Yeah. Now, yeah. Because if you're, you know, my opinion would be that the reason why it's still going is because way too many people make money. Way yes. People. yes. And, um, Not the farmers. No. Okay. So not the farmers. This yeah. is the big corporations. Yeah. So here's how it works. So, so the farmers are the middle men. They're squeezed in the middle right. between the banks, which loan the money to buy their crop seeds and to buy the chemicals. The banks make them buy crop insurance from the government, which then gives them crop insurance, basically a subsidy. Then they go and they buy the seed and the chemicals from the agricultural companies. So they're just, they're just a middleman between the bank and, the, and then these big agricultural seed and chemical companies. Then they squeeze out a little bit of production from their farm and the average farmer makes less than minus $1,600 a year. Oh. And they have all this debt, they have all this machinery, they're stuck in this vicious cycle, their farms are degrading, they're losing soil, they're not resilient to droughts and floods, their, their productivity goes down. And when you look at farmers like Gabe Brown, who was a North Dakota farmer whose farm was decimated from hail and bad weather and storms and this, that, he decided to you know, change his way of farming. He read Thomas Jefferson's journals and learned about all sorts of techniques of farming that were regenerative and restorative that actually helped heal the earth and build soil. And so he started using these ideas. And now he's, he literally uses no input, so no chemicals, seeds, uh, he, no, no, no pesticides, herbicides, fertilizer. He follows the principles of regenerative agriculture. He, he's resilient to droughts and floods. Every percent organic matter he adds to the soil, he holds 27,000 gallons of water. So when his farmer's in a drought, uh, he's doing fine. When the farmer has a flood, his soil holds all the water so it doesn't flood. It, he draws down carbon through the soil, which is 29 inches of soil he's built over the last decades using this technology which takes literally thousands and thousands of years to do without that. And he makes 20 times, 20 times the amount of money as his neighbor. And he produces food that has far more nutrients oh, yeah. than the other food because of the way the soil provides and extracts nutrients from the soil to the plants, including the animals. The animals yeah, are more nutrient dense 
because mm-hmm. the animals are eating hundreds of species of different grasses, the cows, and so those grasses all have medicines in them, phytochemicals, and they end up in the in the animal products. So actually, you you could be eating the equivalent amount of beneficial compounds you get in green tea by having animals that ate certain plants. So this is an incredible area of science that's emerging, and it's it's uh, it's just so exciting because we've yeah. seen a decline of about fifty percent of nutrient density in their food. Uh, and basic minerals and other nutrients, even if you're eating broccoli and you think you're doing well for yourself and you're eating junk food, it's 50% less nutritious than it was 50 years ago. Do you have to eat 50%? Do you have to eat twice as much then? Uh, yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> I tried to, I've occasionally binged on broccoli. I actually growing broccoli in my garden. I went to pick a whole bunch because it was going to go, you know, to seeds. So I, I had to eat it. And it was like, oh, yeah, I think I ate too much broccoli. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to go s- be over here in this other room. Oh my gosh. You said making 20 times more than his neighbor. Yes. I mean, unfortunately, I feel like money drives so much of this. Yes. So when you say that, it must, to as a, if I'm a farmer, I'm thinking, sign me up. How do you do yep. that? How the heck is he making so much more? Who is he? Is he because he produces more? Is it? Yeah. So he, he has, yes. Yes, 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 and yes. So one, he doesn't have to buy all the input. So he's not buying seeds. He's not buying pesticides. He's not buying fertilizer. He's not buying herbicides, right? Second, he's he's actually um, getting more money for his crops because it's a higher value-add product. And he also um, is able to sort of avoid this trap of all this debt that's going on with all these farmers who have to be beholden to the banks and have all these, all these incredible debts. And so he, he's really able to do this. And he's shown with his colleagues uh, through something called the Soil Health Academy, which is an incredible training group of farmers who are training other farmers around the country to do this. And they said, you know, these farmers don't know how to do it and they're nervous and they've been farming the old way for so long. He said, they, they teach them how to do this. And in one year, they're profitable. In the first year, they're profitable. So I think there's a, there's a real need to incentivize farmers to do this. And the reason I care so much about this as a doctor is because I care about the food my patients eat because the right. food is making them sick. And right. if we get them on the right food, they're going to help get healthy. So the solution to our healthcare crisis really starts on the farm. Yes, clearly. Okay. Now on the other side of the spectrum, right? So that's like, those are, I mean, why, what, what woke us up? Uh, I don't know how many of us are awake, but I, I think there's, you know, there's people like you and I who are on this train and there, there are a lot of our followers who are, but there's still a large swath of Americans who are, are pretty um, disconnected from, from what is, is good and healthy, not, not because they don't want to be, but because mm-hmm. there's such a mass of marketing and education. I mean, the, the, the average kid sees, you know, 10,000 ads on TV for junk food in a year. Facebook put a billion, half a billion, half a, no, sorry, 500 billion. <laughs> Facebook had 500 billion ads for junk food for kids, targeted our kids. And this is not stuff that even parents are aware of. They're like tar- micro-targeting these kids. And, and we can't compete with that. And it's everywhere. It's in schools. It's on street corners. It's in the bodegas. It's at the checkout counter. It's, it's like a food carnival that is driving so much of our suffering. And I think we, we, we really don't learn about it in school. Uh, our government doesn't do a good job of providing dietary guidelines that are science-based. You know, we have food programs like SNAP that are, are food stamps that don't have any nutrition guidelines within them. So you can buy soda, junk food. In fact, 10% of SNAP dollars are spent for soda. That's $7 billion a year, which is 
which is about 30 billion servings of soda to the poor. So basically, you know, uh, maybe so Coca-Cola is one of the biggest welfare recipients in the, in the country with billions of dollars going to their bottom line uh, because of a government spending on soda. So we kind of have a screwed up system. And I think uh, there are there are people who are uh, becoming aware and there is a movement of regenerative agriculture. There's a movement of people who are health conscious. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's growing significantly over time. And I, and I really like to see that because it will move the culture like everything else. I have this theory that if, if a company has enough, it's like a, you know, not um, proven or anything, but in my mind, if, if there's a company that has enough money to advertise, I probably shouldn't buy it. <laughs> That's a great idea. Well, look, it depends I've on a lot of, I've spent a lot of my life being paid by people like that. You know, yeah. I don't do it anymore, but I mean, that yeah, was, yeah. That's the way racing world yeah. was, you know? Yeah. And your NASCAR, you know, uniform was just like a big advertisement, right? It's like, yeah. And some, I mean, I had a lot of great sponsors over the years. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, there have been a few along the way that I'm like, mm, doesn't fit. Yeah, right. <laughs> but they have money to advertise. That's true. No, it's true. I think there are good companies out there doing good things. But, uh, you know, and I think there's a whole movement toward B corporations, which are corporations that are, you know, in integrity with their values around how they treat their customers and their, their employees and all the stakeholders. And, you know, I, I see stuff changing. You know, the Business Roundtable, which is a, some of the top companies in the world get together. And in the last gathering they had, they said, we should not just focus on value for our shareholders, but on our stakeholders, which includes our employees, our customers, the earth, everything. You know, what who who's a stakeholder? And that's a, those are big shifts in thinking. So I, I do see change happening. I really do, but it's it's not fast enough for me. <laughs> of course. Well, especially if you're practicing a different way than a great majority of the of the population is. Is there been anything that has really shifted or turned or been flipped upside down with everything that's going on with 2020? Um, well, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, for me, yeah. Two, <laughs> yeah, pretty much everything. Let's just hit reset on it. You know, can we just hit a reboot on the year? <laughs> Let's start yeah. January again. Yeah. It was seemed to be such a positive thing, 2020 and clear vision and, you know, uh, you know, wow. But maybe it is. Maybe it is helping us see things that we never saw before. So there's a few things that have really been exposed, particularly in my world. Uh, one is was the fragility of our food system and the centralization of our food system. We saw that with the meat packing plants and you know, empty shelves. I think there's a real fragility when you have a huge centralization of food processing and food packaging and food production and, and, and the need for a more distributed, decentralized, you know, model that is more stable and sustainable is a really important thing. The second thing that's happened, it's really was is unfortunate, but it's really become clear that the people who are most susceptible to COVID-19 are those who are sick those who are older, those who are overweight. And, and these are diseases that are really driven by diet. So 80% of chronic disease, which is what's killing people with COVID-19, is caused by diet. Now, obesity is a huge risk factor for, for severe illness and death because these people are pre-inflamed. And the diets we're eating are highly inflammatory. Lots of sugar, starch, processed food. All those are inflaming our bodies in ways that makes COVID just so happy and makes the body just overreact and attack and that creates this cytokine storm, which kills people and puts them in the hospital. So if we were all really fit and healthy uh, and, and, and really, you know, not one in two of us weren't pre-diabetic, <laughs> COVID might be, not be such a big deal. Yeah. Wait, we're two people and you said one in two. 
Yeah, one and two. It's actually even worse than that. When you, when you, you know, this is by this, this sort of criteria, the traditional criteria of prediabetes, which I think is very loose. So I think there's another study that came out that only 12% or maybe 12.2 or 3% of Americans are metabolically healthy. That means 88% of us are not metabolically healthy, which means we have high blood sugar, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or have belly fat, right? 88% of us. So even if we're thin, you know, about 20 to 40% of people who are thin, if you think, oh, I eat junk food, I'm not gaining weight, what's the matter? I can eat sugar. No, on the inside, you may be just as bad as someone who's obese. You just can't tell from the outside. Sure. We call that skinny, skinny fat. You skinny look skinny, fat. but you're fat. Nobody wants to be skinny fat no. unless they're fat, fat. And then that's even worse, I guess. But I mean, that's my dad. Like my dad's been pre-diabetic for a while. And, you know, they, I, I mean, I guess it, in, in some way, it's good that they get a little scared. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, people need the motivation, but if, if you're living in, a, in an environment that's a toxic food wasteland uh, where there's really no food, there's only food-like yeah. substances, very hard to change. When every, every, where you go, it's hard to make the right choice. The easy choice is the wrong choice and the hard choice is the right choice. And I think we need to change that and make it more accessible and easy. And I think that's, that's really what's happening. I think there's, there's really a movement towards this, but it's, it's tough. I think there's also some rebellion. There's some cognitive dissonance on the whole situation. Cause like my dad has plenty of availability to healthy food. I mean, all over the place, my sister, my mom, me and information. And, um, and still the choices get made that aren't the, aren't the smartest choices. And so I think there's people too, that also, you know, this comes in, this is the, the mind frame, the, the mental space of really believing that there's, um, that it's the right thing to do. And I want to get to that because that to me is like other modalities of health other than just the pureness of what you put in your mouth. But, um, but let's talk about that. I mean, you know, you've, you've written plenty of books and helped millions of people, you know, take better care of themselves. So, you know, there's, there's some topics I have curiosity on, and I'm guessing other people do too. And so, you know, you, uh, you can be blunt for sure. I love the truth in the most direct way, but there's definitely some curiosity. So like the first one that comes to mind for me with, with, um, my diet that I've, I've, I would say struggled with, been confused about, gone back and forth. And this, this whole debate in my head and in the public about animal protein and, Mm. you know, the, the purity of veganism, right. And not, you know, the cruelty to animals and, and it's, and it's never been the flavor. That's the problem. It's always been the ethics of it all. And, um, you know, but, you know, understanding also that there's a feeling behind how, how you feel when you, when you consume things too. So, you know, maybe the first question is, how much protein do we really need? Well, the, I think the question is really, do we need animal protein or plant protein or both? And how much do we need? And, and I think, you know, you, you just open the can of worms, Pandora's box of meat. And I just want to dive in there for a second, if, if you let me, because I've studied this. <laughs> I've studied this extensively because I want to live to be 120, and I don't want to be eating meat if it's going to kill me. And I, uh, I have focused on the science of creating health for the last 30 years, and I've studied it, and not just studied it, but I've been practicing treating tens of thousands of patients, and it's very humbling. Uh, you can read all these articles you want. You can 
you know, go to these lectures you want, you can listen to all these experts that you want, but when you're in a room with a person day after day and you're seeing the changes that happen when they eat this diet or that diet, it just, it makes you humble to understand we're all different. But that said, there are really three issues around meat. The first is moral and ethical. The second is environmental, right, and climate. And the third is health. And they often get conflated into one issue, right? Uh, if it's morally bad, it's bad for your health, it's bad for the environment. Well, well, the truth is, if, if you are a Buddhist monk or you have ethical objections or religious objections to eating animals, I totally honor that and respect that. And that's a, that's a very good life choice for you if that's what you believe and you want. Uh, it's important to understand that you can't escape killing things, being a human being on the planet. Even if you're eating carrots, you are destroying the habitat of so many animals, right? So just, just animal... Uh, I mean, sorry, vegetable plant agriculture kills 7 billion animals a year. Rabbits, moles, birds, right? Insects, all this. Stuff. I mean, if you can't, insects are probably even more. But but I, I think we can't get away from it. So you might not be directly eating it, but, you know, if, if a rabbit gets, you know, mowed down as they're, you know, picking the vegetables, is that any less of an issue than a cow being slaughtered for human consumption? I don't know. It's just a question you should think about. So that's the first issue. The second issue is environmental and climate. And I think this is really unfortunate because it gets dichotomized into the only way to save the planet is to be vegan because animal agriculture, animal industrial agriculture is causing climate change. And it's a false conversation because CAFOs or confined animal feeding operations are horrible. They're, they're horrible for the animals in terms of their treatment. They're horrible for the environment and drive climate change and amazing environmental destruction. And they're bad for us. The quality of the meat is bad. However, that doesn't mean that all meat is bad. If you look at, for example, wild animals or regeneratively raised animals, very different. So for example, if you look at a regeneratively raised cow, some, um, some people said, you know, it's not the cow, it's the how. You know, if you take a regenerally raised cow, which is grown in a way that is in open grasslands, it's, it's treated very well, it moves around in a herd-like fashion in a way that actually builds soil. They eat lots and lots of different plants, so their, their nutritional density of their food is very high. They're less inflammatory or actually maybe anti-inflammatory. You know, I mean, there's one study of a kangaroo. Uh, is in, they eat a lot of kangaroo meat in Australia, so they actually they actually measured people's levels of inflammation eating kangaroo meat, you know, ounce for ounce compared to a feedlot meat, and the feedlot meat raised people's levels of inflammation, whereas the kangaroo meat reduced the inflammation, right? So it's 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 really depending on what you're eating, and in term in terms of you know environment, the only way to really draw down enough carbon to take us out of the disaster that's climate change is to build soil. It is the biggest carbon capture technology on the planet. It can store three times the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere right now. 30 to 40% of all the carbon in the atmosphere now is not coming from fossil fuels, it's coming from loss of soil carbon because of the destructive agricultural methods that till it up, that use the chemicals that destroy the soil. So using animals to build soil can actually draw down the carbon and actually, some say that it may even be enough to stop climate change for 20 years. According to the UN, if we take five of uh, the five million degraded acres of land, hectares of land around the world, and we took two million of those and we spent $300 billion to turn into regenerative agriculture, we could stop climate change for 20 years. 
Now, $300 billion seems like a lot of money, but it's basically less than Medicare spends on diabetes. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's less than two months of military spending around the world. It's about the economy of Chile every year. So, I mean, I think, I think we actually have the ability to do this. We've spent, what, I don't know, what was it? Three, four, five trillion dollars on COVID recovery. I mean, 300 billion is a, is a rounding error on that. And, and yet we could do that. So, so I think from the environmental issues, um, it, it's really important to understand that it's, it's almost impossible to really solve climate change without using animals in an integrated way, in a regenerative way on the farm and eliminating factory farm animals. Now, that doesn't mean you have to eat it. If you're morally opposed, you don't have to eat it but they're, they're a necessary part of restoring ecosystems. And the third issue is health. And this is where it gets really sticky because <laughs> I've written whole books on this, but, it's, but essentially, you know, we're, we're told that animal protein is gonna kill you. And it's based on very poor data and there's contradictory data. So you, no matter what side you're on, you can literally find a, a plethora of studies to prove that meat is healthy and a plethora of studies to show that meat's gonna kill you, right? Right. How, who do you believe, right? And, and most of these studies are what we call observational studies. So yeah. the, the, the big meat studies that show they're so harmful were what we do, we call population studies. So we'll, we'll, we'll set a date and time, let's say 1970, and then we'll follow people for 30 years. And every year we'll ask them a questionnaire, what did you eat, what did you eat, what did you eat? And then we'll find out what they died from. And then we'll try to see if there's a correlation. Now, um, correlation studies aren't proof. They're not proving anything. They're just showing a correlation. So for example, um, I could do a study of women over 55 who had sex, and I would conclude that women who had that sex would never lead to pregnancy, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? It's, it's true, but it's kind of scientifically irrelevant, right? Uh, or, 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 I, I, or the studies that show there's an increase show a just slight increase. So it's also the, the degree of change with these observational studies. So smoking, you saw a 20 to 1 increase in the risk of lung cancer in smokers in these observational studies. That you could take to the bank. If it's anything less than a two-fold increase, it's probably not so relevant. It could be just chance. So most of the studies on meat are like a, a 0.7, or sorry, 0.17, a 0.3, and they say that's a 30% increase, right? It's not a 2,000% increase. It's a, you know, so I think, I think we just get all screwed up with the numbers. And then third, a lot of these studies were done at times when people were eating, well, they were eating feedlot meat, they were eating terrible foods and the meat eaters at the time were unhealthy. Why? Because everybody knew that meat was bad for you back then. We should cut out meat and saturated fat. And so people who ate meat didn't care about their health. And when you looked at their, their characteristics, they smoked more, they drank more, they ate more, they weighed more, they ate less fruits and vegetables, they didn't take their vitamins. Of course, they, they had more heart disease. So was it the meat or something else? And there's been large studies looking at uh, meat. There was a review of six uh, six different studies that were published looking at, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different trials and found that there really was no significant correlation. And that was with feedlot meat. So when you say, well, what happens when you feed people regenerative meat or kangaroo meat or a wild elk? I mean, what is that going to do? So I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's also important to understand that even if we decided we want to eliminate all meat, you know, 40% of the land on the planet that we use for agriculture is not suitable to grow crops, which means you can only graze animals. And animals upcycle nutrients that are inedible to humans into the most nutritious, nutrient-dense source of protein on the planet. So, we, you know, if we want to feed the planet, we can't just say, we're not going to use those 40% of lands that are agricultural because we don't want to have animals. It just doesn't make sense. So I think in terms of how much protein do we need, what kind of protein do we need, I think, you know, mixtures of animal and plant proteins are fine. I think if, you, if you're exclusively plant-based, 
uh, it's harder to get adequate protein as you age, particularly with muscle mass. And the studies on this are very clear. There are, there are very low levels of leucine, which is a rate-limiting amino acid and a few other important amino acids in plant proteins where they're very high in animal proteins. And so when you look at muscle building and muscle mass as, as these studies go forward, you can do it, but you have to eat enormous amounts. You have to eat like three, four cups of beans, right? Nobody's going to do that. So to compare to like, you have to have two cups of beans or three cups of beans to have a six ounce piece of chicken or fish, right? And, it, and, I, think, and, and I think people just aren't going to be able to get that. And I think that's what I worry about. And even, even the studies that show, you know, if you eat a lot of protein early on, it might turn on age, 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 aging faster genes. If you look at the, when people hit a certain age, if they don't even have protein, they're actually going to age much faster. Um, there was, there was a great, uh, great, there was a great professor, uh, Professor Walter Longo, who's an aging expert at, uh, I think it was at UCLA, and uh, I've had him on my podcast, at Doctor's Pharmacy, and he, he, um, he said, you know, he, yeah, thank you, <laughs> and he said, he said, uh, you know, there was this woman Emma Morano who was a, a, someone he knew was an Italian woman because he's Italian, he was studying aging, and she died at 117 years old. And when she was like a teenager, her doctors told her she was anemic and she needed to eat three eggs a day. So she ate three eggs a day her whole life. And then he said when she was in her 90s, he told her she was kind of dwindling a little bit. So he said, you should eat a pound of meat a day. <laughs> you should eat a pound of meat a day. And she looked to be 117 years old. Now, that's an anecdote, obviously. But, you know, I think, I think uh, the, the, the biggest disease of aging is sarcopenia, which if, if people haven't heard of that, it basically means sarco means less. Sorry, sarco means uh, muscle and penia means less. So you have less muscle. So you lose muscle. And you can see this as people age. They get, you know, flabby and muscle loss. So you could be 65, be the same weight that you were when you were 25 and be twice as fat because your muscle ends up looking like, you know, a ribeye instead of a filet mignon, right? And that is bad for your health. It's bad for your hormones, causes stress hormones to go up. It makes your testosterone go down if you're a guy. It makes you, you know, have all, all kinds of uh, increased inflammation and, and metabolic issues and blood sugar issues. So, so it's really important to conserve and preserve muscle. It's one of the most central things around aging. And I think, I think people just underestimate the importance of that. And you can only do so much through exercise. You need to, to basically, the exercise is sort of like, you know, the, 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 you know putting the, the flame on the fire, but you need to put the ingredients in the pan. You need to have the right quality protein. Mm. So I hope that answered your question. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I, I made more of them. Um, I feel like I remember hearing about this difference in animal proteins and basically, you know, and maybe this came from De David Asprey and sort of the bulletproof sort of, you know, when that came along and him talking about butter and how, you know, the, the butter that um, comes from a certain kind of cow is inflammatory, but this other certain kind of cow is anti-inflammatory. And so that plays right into what you said. Yes, about absolutely. Like, how do you, as a consumer, how do you make that choice? Like, what do you, how well, do you get the good stuff? It's not what you eat. It's what you're eating eight, right? Right. So, so if you're, if you're growing broccoli in a soil that's depleted and the soil, the broccoli's diet is very poor, the broccoli is not going to be so healthy. If you're eating a feedlot cow that's eating corn silage and ground up animal parts and Skittles and who knows what else, chicken poop, uh, probably not going to be so healthy. But if you're eating a cow that has been grazing on hundreds of different species of medicinal plants with phytonutrients and vitamins and minerals, you know, you're going to, it's going to be quite different. So it's really about what you're eating ate uh, and what, and what soil it grew in. And so, so I think, you know, I, I sort of really love this concept of becoming a regenitarian to regenerate the earth and your health 
through mm -hmm. choosing foods that actually are grown in a way that re is regenerative. And I think that's not something we all can do today because there just isn't enough of it. You know, organic is certainly a better step. Um, but I, I think there, you know, whether it's, you know, sourcing things from your local community support agriculture uh, groups, there's, there's, there's community support agriculture or CSAs where you can work with local farms, they'll drop off a box of food to your house, or there's something called misfits or imperfect produce where you can order online, they mm -hmm. drop off ugly. I mean, I got this ugly potato, but it's like perfectly fine or funny looking, you know, carrot or, you know, it's like, they're, who cares what they look like? We throw, we throw out really 40 percent of our food goes in the landfills, not just, you know, because it's ugly, but because we waste it at the table and the grocery yeah. stores. And so, um, you know, we can really become conscious about where our food, food is sourced from and the quality of our food. And I think, you know, if there are one guiding principle that I would have people think about, it's this, you know, food is not just calories, it's actually information, right? It's instructions, it's like code, and you can upgrade or downgrade your biological software with every bite, and so when you're eating, you're not just eating for energy, you're eating for medicine. And the, and the animals know this. Like if you take an animal and you put it on a grassland, it will forage and eat all kinds of different plants. It's not going to just eat the cookies, right? It's going to eat everything to give itself all the things that it needs. We've lost that connection to huh. nature. So, so like kids. Dogs, so when my dogs are out walking and they start eating the plants on the side of the trail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They, like the cat, my cat said, they eat the grass. So like kids <laughs> will do that. If, if kids are iron deficient, they will eat dirt, Right. If, if people are eating junk food, they are eating more and more food, be, partly because it's addictive, but also because there's no nutrients in the food and they're looking for nutrients in the wrong place. So you literally, if you give people an unlimited amount of whole foods to eat and an unlimited amount of processed foods to eat in a, in a meal, they'll eat 500 calories more of the processed foods because they're just not getting the nutrient and the satisfaction. So so just think about you know how you, how you look at the quality of the food. So really, you are changing every single thing in your body, not over decades, but literally in minutes by what you eat. You're changing your gene expression, your hormones, your immune system, your gut flora, your microbiome. You're changing your brain chemistry literally with every single bite. And so you, you have to think about that when you eat and go, well, am I going to be turning on things that are going to make me feel good or bad? And sometimes you'll make a bad choice. That's fine. But you don't, you know, you, you, you just, just be like a GPS, you know, just make it next you turn and get back on track. Don't beat yourself up and yell at yourself, but just, you know, get back on track. But, you know, it, it is the most central thing that people have to understand. Food is medicine. It's not like medicine. It literally is, is medicine. I've always believed that. Um, where, so where's the best place to get, you know, I'm thinking about most people, you know, they go to the grocery store and you go to the organic section. You think this is buying great food, you know, you buy organic meat or, you know, what's the best, you know, give us, give people some tips when they go to the grocery store Yeah. or even just say like, if you can meet, is a farmer's market good? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, so I, yes. you know, what's it's the hierarchy question. and how do you get the good stuff? Yeah, it's a great question. So I've read a lot of books about this. My last one, Food Fix, talked about how to become a regenitarian and how do, how do you make the choices? And I, I, if you go online to foodfixbook.com, there's the Food Fix Action Guide, and there's 20 suggestions of what to do. And it's everything from where to order online to community support agriculture, growing your own garden. Uh, Thrive Market, for example, is one of my favorites. You can get 25 to 50% off goods there for all whole healthy food goods that you see at Whole Foods for a very expensive price. You can go directly to farmers who are general farmers like Mariposa Ranch and others where you can buy directly from the farmers. And you can get, you know, if you, if you get a big freezer and you maybe share with your friends, you can buy half a cow 
mm-hmm. you can get it for eight bucks a pound for regenerative meat, which is less per serving than McDonald's hamburger. Can so, you search for regenerative farmers in your area? You could, yeah. And you could go to farmers markets that you can buy from your local farmers and you can you can, you know, do these community support agriculture efforts. And and that's just a great place to start. And then you can, you know, talk to your local grocery store about, you know, sourcing more locally. So there are ways to do it. It's not easy, it's not perfect, but it'll grow. Well, you can spend money on your health now or you can spend it later when you feel like crap and you have to spend all that money because you're, you know, in a hospital. So to pick your poison, right? That's true. That's <laughs> spend true. the money now or spend it later. Well, it's um, not, you know, it's, you know, uh, Danica, it's not just the money. People understand that they, they, they lose the quality of their life. Totally. Right? The yeah. quality of your life is everything. It's how you engage with the things that you love and care about. Can you show up in your relationships fully? Can you enjoy your body and being out in nature and doing what you want? Can you can you do the work you want to do in the world? Can you fulfill your purpose? Can you be a volunteer and be of service? I mean, if you feel like crap, nobody wants to run around and help anybody else. You just want to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. So uh, it, we talk about presenteeism. We talk about you know, this phenomena of, you know, being at the job and not being on the job because you feel like crap. These, these things are terrible and they deprive us of enormous amounts of, of social, economic and spiritual capital that, that is, is really unnecessary if we were just focus on restoring our own health and that helps yeah. us then restore our community's health and it just becomes a ripple effect. I, I'm so glad you said that. I, I think that's really true. Um, another aspect of protein that I have consumed really my whole life. And I would imagine a lot of people have, and that's, um, protein powders. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I have this idea, I, I mean, in my mind, I'm like, okay, it's protein, but I also have this lurking feeling like not really. Well, it depends on what, right? So I actually, uh, you know, have used them on and off over the years. And I think that, it, you know, it's, it's again, like anything, what are the ingredients? Where do they come from? Where are they sourced? Are they whole or are they processed? You know, for example, you have soy protein, you know, you're getting isolated soy protein, which is a waste product from making soybean oil that's extracted in a way that alters the protein structure and makes it carcinogenic and inflammatory. And you think, oh, I'm getting soy protein shake. Well, it's terrible, you know? Yeah. Uh, but you know, there's pea protein shakes, which may be better. But again, how was it grown? Was it organic? Is it full of pesticides? You know, what was the soil like? And, and then what are the other ingredients? Is there a lot of sugars or a lot of additives, chemicals? Uh, you know, it's hard. I actually uh, was so frustrated with the shakes that I created my own, which is made of, you know, real ingredients like mm. hemp seeds and pumpkin seeds and pea protein and just like real food. Is this what's in the 10-day um, the reset that you have? Yeah, it's the pegan the shake, the pegan shake. And I, it's just pegan so shake. delicious. Pegan, yeah. Because I'm like, made so much fun about this diet wars. You know, everybody's a paleo vegan and everybody's yeah. fighting everybody. And the truth is everybody, if you look at the people who are focused on health and food, they agree on like 90% of everything. We should all eat whole foods. We shouldn't eat processed foods. Yeah. We shouldn't yeah. eat, you know, we should eat, you know, whole or not, not, uh, you know, ideally organic. We shouldn't be having all these chemicals in our food. I mean, it's all the same. You know, the only thing that's different between paleo and vegan is where you get your protein. Everything else is the same, even no dairy. So I think it's just, you know, it's just kind of ironic. So I said, well, you know, I was on a, I was on a panel with a friend of mine who was a paleo doc, another was a vegan cardiologist and they were fighting. I'm like, if you're paleo and you're vegan, I must be pegan. And the whole audience laughed. I'm like, oh, this is good. I'm going to use that. And so I basically created, I created this article, which kind of went viral and it, it ended up in like, you know, LA Times, Washington Post and Telegraph in the UK and like USA Today. I'm like, what is going on here? And I'm like, it's the hottest new diet trend. I'm like, it was a joke. 
<laughs> well, uh, I'm on it. Um, I'm on your train, your Pegan train. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that's brilliant. It's just, it's just, it's just, it just, it just takes out all the extremism and puts in common sense and science yeah. and gets us agreeing on what we should be doing because they right. all have far more in common with each other than they do with the standard American diet. That's the enemy, right? It's not, it's not each other. It's, yeah. you know, like if you want to be vegan, great. If you want to eat paleo, fine. Let's focus on the real issue, which is what the rest of America is eating, which is 60% of our diet is ultra processed foods. That's the problem. I always feel like I was just talking to my friend about this the other day. We went down to a little farmer's market and we picked up some, you know, tomatoes and some, you know, farm fresh eggs. They're of course colorful and uh, all kinds of other good stuff. And I was like, man, I, Feel like if people could just wrap their head around the idea of sourcing food that's made by the sun yeah. like oh is your box of cereal made by the sun no maybe yeah. you should eat it right oh is this <laughs> banana made by the sun yeah that's probably a better option that's is a that good a, one. a good way to think of it i think it's a great way i, I you know I, I, I used to do a lot of lectures in churches and i would try to make it really simple for people i said really simple leave the food that man made and eat the food that god made did God make a Twinkie? No. Did God make an avocado? Yeah. It's pretty simple. Even a kid in kindergarten can figure that one out. So I think that's a really simple principle. And I, you know, I just try to have food in my fridge and food in my cupboard. And yeah. sometimes I have packaged foods, but it's, it's like a, can, a, a jar of roasted red peppers or a can of sardines or, you know, a bag of nuts or, you know, sometimes it's like I might cheat and get like a bag of, you know, pre-cooked lentil curry, but it's all real ingredients, right? So I think, I think as long as you're reading the ingredient list, forget the nutrition facts label because that's confusing, but read the ingredients. And if there's anything in there that you wouldn't actually have in your cupboard, you shouldn't eat it. Like if it has butylated hydroxytoluene, would you have that and sprinkle that on your salad every night? No, you don't have that on your cupboard, but it's in most processed food, right? Would you have maltodextrin? Probably not, you know? Uh, so, so if you see any of these things that you don't recognize or you literally don't have in a jar or in a, something in your cupboard, don't eat it. I have one that I'm really curious about. I wasn't going to ask anything too, too specific, but what about citric acid? Because I feel like I've read that it's mold. Is this true? I mean, no. Citric acid is, uh, is, is, is like, a, is, it comes like lemons and, you know, citrus food. And it's, it's a preservative that can be used to help yeah. sort of preserve food. It's, it's not one of the worst ones. No. Okay, good. Well, you just opened me back up to other items now. So that's good. Um, you had mentioned obviously like have real food. And so that kind of leads to the final aspect of the, of, of, you know, our diets that I feel like there's so many questions around and, you know, when I'm sugar and, you know, fruits natural. Right. And so how, what's your perspective or what's, how much of that should we be eating and should we be avoiding it altogether if possible? Well, well here's the thing. You know, we, we as hunter gatherers would you know, really have a hard time finding sugar. You know, we'd get a honey thing or we'd find some berries. We, we maybe we'd have 22 teaspoon equivalents of sugar a year. Now we have 22 teaspoons a day and some, a lot more kids have 34 and the average intake of sugar is about 152 pounds per person per year. And of flour, it's about 133 pounds and, and they are equivalent. So below the neck, your body can't tell a piece of bread from a bowl of sugar. Same thing. I mean, the, actually the bread's worse. When it comes to glycemic index, the bread is 100, sugar's 80. <laughs> so Why? it's actually, because it's so highly pulverized and broken down that it's just quickly absorbed. So I think it's, it's a problem. Uh, so I, I think, I you know. You think about, like you think about um, oats and how there's like quick cook, 
Then there's, you right, know, steel like, cut, right? Steel, and then it gets all the way to like, you know, steel cut, right? Whole or something oats, very yeah. kerneled that you have to cook for a really long or time. Or even whole that, oats, yeah. Right. Like, is that kind of, you know, the way to think about it is like the more pulverized yeah, it becomes exactly. sugar, the more yeah. um, high glycemic eat, it is. Eat, eat a wheat berry. <laughs> don't eat the wheat, you know. Yeah. Eat brown rice. Don't eat brown rice flour. And I, th- I think uh, we, we really have, have, overburden our biologies with sugar and we're not adapted to it, which is why we see one in two people with prediabetes, which is why we see 75% are overweight is because about 60% of our calories is this starchy, sugary food. And that is driving insulin levels high. And insulin is the hormone that makes your blood sugar go in your cells, but it also makes you store belly fat. It drives inflammation. It causes cancer, heart disease, dementia, obviously diabetes. It is, it is the driver of aging. So the whole key to successful aging and health is to keep your insulin levels low. And the best way to do that is by eating a whole foods diet, is by cutting out as much starch and sugar as you can, you know, and that includes things like tons of white starchy potatoes. Have the little uh, Peruvian potatoes. Those are okay because they're not so starchy. Sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes are fine. And it depends on your metabolic health. So if you're like you, you're an athlete, you're healthy. But if you're, if you're metabolically unhealthy, you're not a resilient. So you're not metabolically resilient. So, so you can't withstand the stress of that, right? So you could, your body could withstand the stress of being in a race car and going bazillion miles around the racetrack. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just took some, somebody who's really out of shape and who never exercised and was 300 pounds in the race car, it would be a bad situation. <laughs> They're not, they couldn't handle it. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you are an athlete or if you're active and you're fit, you can tolerate more freedom in your diet. You can have more starch. You can maybe have a little more sugar. If you're diabetic, no. I mean, I, for my diabetic patients, we put them on ketogenic diets, which means not only you no know, sugar, but you know, down to like less than 5% of their calories is carbohydrates yeah. and 70% is fat. And they're reversing diabetes within a year in 60% of patients, like reversing it, gone. No sugar issues, no insulin, no medications. It's radical, and this is really great published data. So I, I think I think we really have to sort of look at where you are in that metabolic health spectrum, metabolic resiliency, and flexibility. And if you know if you're someone who's exercising every day, and you're you know if you ride your bike 50 miles, yeah, go ahead, you can have like you know some sugar. Uh, fruit fruit is okay for most people. Again, if you're really not metabolically resilient, you know you're eating a lot of fruit, it may it may drop spike your blood sugar. So it's really about where you are in that spectrum. Are you better off with fruit? Or, well, should you just look at the glycemic level of an ingredient? To yeah. Get- I mean, it's also what you eat it with, right? So if you have, um, let's say, uh, something with protein and fat along with fruit, you know, right? If you, if, for example, you just have a glass of, right, if you have a glass, a smoothie of fruit, but if you throw in some protein and fat, it's going to slow down the absorption. It's going to lower Got the it. glycemic load of the meal. It'll make your blood sugar not spike as much. Okay. I mean, like, I totally don't have enough time with you. Um, so we can I do a part two. Oh, that'd be great. Um, and maybe I should, maybe I should, because I, I really want to ask about other modalities too. I want to ask about sleep, meditation, fasting, exercise. Yeah. Again, totally don't have enough time. So maybe we should, maybe we should just keep this on food and, and some other time we can do that. Um, uh, so let me ask about kids. So, I know obesity is a huge issue, especially in kids. There's, you know, billions of dollars spent on advertisements to kids. And of course they're susceptible to the beautiful, colorful ad that makes them look like they're going to have so much fun eating whatever it is that they're being presented. Um, But 
kids inevitably get tall, right? They grow, they get tall, they, you know, grow limbs and they get smarter and all this stuff happens. And so, you know, kind of no matter what you feed your kid, they're going to do that, right? Like you could feed them fruit roll-ups and cereal every day and they're still going to grow. So they'll grow up and they'll grow out. Ah, explain that. (laughs) Well, they'll grow tall, but they'll grow fat too. Oh yeah. (laughs) But some, I mean, yeah, I guess it's the same syndrome as adults. It's skinny fat sometimes, but you know, no, they can grow fat, fat. I mean, 40% of kids are overweight, 40%. So this is a pandemic of obesity in kids. So what I guess the question is, is how do we, like, how do you make a decision as a parent? What is the, what awareness should they have about feeding their children? Like, does it all matter what you feed them now just as much as it matters later? Or are kids kind of like, oh, whatever, they're kids, they eat that. No, no. No, one of the studies that that just blew me away was, well, a couple of things. One was the Bogalusa Heart Study, which looked at children and followed children very young and followed them throughout their life over many decades. And they found that kids who ate junk food and processed food had, you know, starting to have like pre-diabetes, pre-hypertension, you know, pre oh, really? early, like seven, eight, nine years old. And they could tell that they were seeing fatty streaks in these kids' arteries, even before they were out of their childhood. And that these kids then ended up having higher risk of heart attacks and strokes and death because of their diets when they were younger. And we know from epigenetics and from what happens in the, u- in the, u- in the uterus, in the womb, that the kids who actually are born to mothers who eat horrible food have all the genes turned on that program them for obesity and diabetes and heart disease and even cancer. So it absolutely matters. And I think you know, the most important thing you can do, I mean, the most important thing you can do for your, your kids is to start early in, in your home by making your home a safe zone. You know, you can't protect them from everything out there. But for a while, you know, my kids, they only ate what I cooked. I made them lunch, I made them dinner, I made them breakfast. We had a garden, I got them in the kitchen. I got, I got them in the kitchen. I have, I have a video from one, like my son's like one year, well, 13, 14 months old in the kitchen, making a mess, making you know some flower thing and my daughter cooking. And, and we got them cooking and being part of the food when we went, we took, I took them to the grocery store. We went grocery shopping. I showed them how to grocery shop. We grew a garden. They went in the gardens. They helped plant the seeds. So they, by the time, like, you know, yeah, they, they maybe go and eat junk food and rebel a little bit. Like, you know, my daughter did that in high school. My son did it. But then they, they come back and now they're, you know, they're really healthy, focused. Uh, and, and my son's a chef and my, my daughter's going to medical school and they're really focused on healthy cooking and eating. So I think, you know, if, if you haven't done that, it's never too late to start. But I think it's really important to, to make your home a safe zone with your kids and, and teach them about food and teach them to read labels. And you know, one time my, my son brought his friends over. He said, I, I, Dad, there's nothing to eat in the house. You know, I got a bunch of teenage boys. There's nothing to eat. Can we, go, can we go shopping? I'm like, sure, we can go shopping and get what you want. I said, there's one rule. You can't buy anything with trans fat. Nothing. No trans fat. He, he literally couldn't find anything to buy. Like everything had trans fat. The pizzas, the this, that everything was full of trans fat. <laughs> you know, now it's not, it's been ruled as not safe to eat by the government, uh, but it's still out there in foods. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's, I feel like there's just, there's just so much compromise being made. And I, I tend to be on the regimented side of things and a little mm. bit stiff in my, in my, in my diet and what I do, but you know, I kind of believe that you're either adding or reducing to your wellness, like one or yeah. the other. I yeah. almost don't feel like there's a middle ground. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, think about like if you're really resilient, 
you know, how, how you can bounce back, right? So I think if, if, if I think about this as a metabolic degrees of freedom, if you, if you create a really robust health, then if you, you know, you have a little, you know, uh, sugar one day, it's not going to kill you, right? Your, your body can handle it. It, it's you know, but it but it but it, if you're if you're like in other words if you're a, if you're a wellness athlete let's call it, then you can withstand lots of stresses that other people couldn't. Now you don't want to do that for a long time or over a long period of time, but you know it's okay if you want to have a glass of wine or if you want to you know have a piece of cake or something. Like I I don't, I don't make people be fanatic because I think it's it, you know unless they want to, it's it's not necessary. But if if you're you know ninety percent of the time or more focused on and by the way, when I see something sweet or whatever, I'm talking about a real whole food. Make your own cookies from scratch, you know? Make them, you know, maybe make them from ingredients like I have my cookbooks, like almond flour and coconut flour, so they're higher in protein and don't have gluten and don't have, and have other kinds of sugars, use dates, you know? So there's, there's ways to make things that are dessert-like without creating a problem. You know, I make ice cream, which, which is basically taking frozen blackberries and I throw it in a blender with some coconut milk and, you know, a little vanilla and, you know, you can even put a drop of honey in there and it's like delicious. People don't know when it's delicious. It's like, uh, it's like sorbet. So I think you can, you can really uh, hack sweet things in ways that actually make them healthy. But, but I don't think we should, you know, feel like, oh, you have to be a ascetic and a monk and you can't ever let, you know, one drop of sugar pass your lips. Cause that's, that's, you know, sweet things are good. <laughs> True. And I think that that's what, um, you know, learning how to cook is a really good way to, you know, take care of your own health as well as know how to deal with being outside of your house, like knowing what ingredients are what, knowing, knowing how things are prepared when you go into restaurants um, because you've done it at home and you're like, wait, that doesn't, yeah, that on my lips, that's oil. That's a lot of fat on those vegetables or, or whatever it is. It gives you a much better indication of yeah. what you're experiencing outside. So, um, Okay, I'm going to skip over all the all the fun modalities outside, uh, all the fun ways that we can take care of ourselves outside of just food itself. And, um, you know, what's, uh, I mean, the, you know, one thing I'm really, I do want to ask about is I, you have a wellness center, the ultra wellness. I do, I do. I, I have a practice. And... Horizon, and I feel like this is like part of it. Because even I was thinking to myself with, um, I was going to ask with, I feel like I don't even know if I can trust certifications on labels just because it's organic or just because it's this or that. Does the, US, the USDA certify it or whatever? What does that really mean? And should, maybe that's the first question. Do we need to create a whole new approval system? Well, I mean, USDA's organic certification does mean something. And there are, you know, there are certifications that mean something. And I talk about them, for example, for fish, for animal products, for poultry, and like what the different organizations are that will verify whether or not it's okay or not, uh, or if it's better for you. Um, there's a new certification that's, that's being put forth, which I really love. It's called regenerate, regenerative organic certification, oh, cool. which is new. Uh, and I think that that needs to get pushed forward because that just raises the bar a little bit. Yeah. And then it pushes the people more and more into that space. Agreed. That's awesome. Um, when do you think we'll start seeing that? Can we see that in stores now? Labeling? Uh, not, not yet. I don't think, but soon, I hope. Yeah. All right. Well, what's the ultra wellness center then? Well, I've had a practice for 15 years in Lenox, Massachusetts, which has treated people from all over the world for chronic complaints that are addressed through functional medicine, which is really the science of creating health. And we treat the body and the system, we don't treat the disease. It's really like being a f soil farmer as opposed to growing, you know, soybean and 
you know, putting all these chemicals and fertilizers, like as a drug example. Uh, it's more like being a, a regenerative farmer as a doctor. And, and I help regenerate human health through removing those things that cause problems and adding those things that, that create health. And that leads to uh, people getting better from all sorts of chronic issues, not just the obesity and diabetes, but autoimmune disease and neurologic diseases mm -hmm. and digestive issues and mood issues. I mean, it's really so much that can be helped with functional medicine. And we're doing all our visits virtually now. We have you know, a very uh, large group of doctors and nutritionists and, and great team. And so we now are doing all telemedicine. So you don't, doesn't matter where you are in the world, we can still take care of you. Do you see Somebody that expanding? Well, you know, we, we, <laughs> we did expand. I mean, during COVID, we've seen a real uptick in our, in our business. It's just, really? um, yeah, because people don't have to travel and they don't have to go anywhere and they can see me like this on Zoom and we can have a great conversation and, and people feel great. So it's a whole new technology of telemedicine. And uh, and I think, you know, I, I, I don't know how big we want to grow, but I think we're, we're doing a great job of taking care of really amazing people. And also have the Center for Functional Medicine at Cleveland Clinic, which I run, which is a great resource for people as well. So, um, and they can go to ultrawellnesscenter.com, learn more about our work. Uh, and it's, it's pretty fun because... Uh, we get people from, you know, people who are extremely sick at the very end of the spectrum of disease to people who just want to be super athletes and healthy and live to be 120. So anywhere in that spectrum, we really help people. How can someone find, um, how can someone find a functional doctor? Well, they can go to uh, a website called functionalmedicine.org. Oh. Sorry. Um, no, it's um, ifm.org. So it'd be ifm.org. Mm -hmm. which is the Institute for Functional Medicine. And, um, and there is a tab that's called Find a Practitioner tab. And you can search for one in your area who's been certified. And that'll give you a start. It doesn't tell you, you know, like for us, we have, you know, 60, 70 years of collective experience. They might have one, right? So it doesn't tell you how experienced they are. But, you know, the Ultra Wellness Center, again, is available to everybody. That's a great resource. So yeah amazing. All right. Well, can you send us off with, um, you know, like a top five list of the most um, what, what can we eat that would make us feel better every day? Well, I, I think it's really simple. I mean, I, 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 I feel bad that I, I make my career out of something so obvious and simple, but it's really eat real food, right? If, if, if it didn't, you know, come from a plant, don't eat it. In other words, if it wasn't eating a plant or come from a, a literally a plant, not grown, not made in a plant, you should eat it. That's what Michael Pollan says. So eat real whole foods. Mm -hmm. Second is don't eat ultra processed food. Don't eat stuff that is full of all these weird ingredients. It's full of hormones, antibiotics, pesticides, tons of sugar, starch. I mean, just get rid of that stuff from your diet. Eat real food. Second is increase the amount of plant foods you eat. Eat 75% of your plate as non-starchy vegetables, okay. um, which, which are, you can eat in unlimited quantities. Like you want to eat 14 cups of broccoli, go right ahead. You know, like you yeah. will promise you you'll get full. And I usually have two or two or three or four different vegetable dishes every night. So I don't just have one, like, you know, like a protein and like one vegetable. I have like a lot of vegetables and a little bit of protein. Yeah. And I think, you know, eat good quality fats. Also, people are afraid of fat and they think that makes right. them fat. But the olive oil, avocados, nuts and seeds, these good fats are so important. And if you can tolerate them, some things like MCT oil, coconut oil, those can be helpful, ghee, grass-fed butter. These can be fine. Even animal fats are fine for a lot of people if they're not eating them with starch and sugar. So the caveat is oh. if you're eating a lot of starch and sugar and you have saturated fat, it's dead. So don't do that. Um, and then, and then you want to, does that mean like an apple and peanut butter or an apple and that's fine. Butter? That's fine. Okay. That's fine. That's fine. It's, it's more like, you know, bread and butter. Don't do that. Right. Uh. <laughs> right. If you saturate bread and butter, that's a deadly combo. Yeah. 
a cookie, ice cream. Those are deadly combos. French fries, deadly combos. Got it. <laughs> you know, so I think, uh, and then you know, we just we just have to understand that that uh, our, our our bodies are are incredible um, organisms that can heal and repair if we provide the right ingredients and we take out the bad ingredients. And mm -hmm. so just following these simple principles and I, I'm coming up with a book in uh, next February called the Pegan diet, which is kind of a joke about the principles, but it's, it's basically like 20, 20 something uh, principles for, for eating in a nutritionally confusing world. And I just try to break it down and, and tell people to say, look, these are the simple things and you know, mm -hmm. you don't have to be perfect, but these are, these are, these are like guardrails, right? These are not, mm -hmm. you know, absolute rules. Yeah. Amazing. Well, congratulations on all your success. 13 time bestseller, New York Times, the best selling author. Like you, you're, in, you're helping millions and millions of people all Thank over you. the world, um, you know, get healthy. So take care, you. You can regenerate, the soil can regenerate, it can all be well. Exactly. It's all about regenerating and rebuilding our, our communities, ourselves, our nation. I mean, we need, we're in a time of rebuilding. And I think this uh, time of COVID is a giant timeout to put go in our rooms and think about what we did wrong and figure out how to do it right. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Okay, take care. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.